Yarn. Yarn number four, the siren. I don't remember the dream exactly. There was a mushroom cloud on the horizon. I wasn't alone. There was a group of us. We were fleeing frantically across some rocky landscape, into a bunker or something. Panic, fear, pandemonium. And then I awoke, into the darkness of 4.45 on a November morning. The embers of the streetlight outside seared through a small slit at the top of my drawn curtains. I was shook, but still sleepy enough to just lie there without moving. The dream had been vivid. I really felt like it had just happened. And I could still hear... that sound. I waited another moment or two to see if I was still just asleep. Am I really hearing that? I was. The siren. The sound itself is unsettling. Now I might have a thing about sounds that wail, because I am Irish, and when I was growing up, my cousin used to tell me stories about the Banshee, a sort of female grim reaper that heralds the death of a loved one through her terrifying queen. But the siren is also unsettling because of what I associate with it. Londoners crowding into tube stations during the Blitz, 1960s era American school kids drilling for a Soviet strike. Around that time, the siren became known as the Doomsday Siren. The Doomsday Siren. Imagine that. Just in case you didn't know, since the 1950s, it's been perfectly possible for the human race to wipe itself out through nuclear war. I first learned about this in the back seat of the car, listening to a conversation between my older brother and father. I was around eight, but they were talking about the end of the world. My brother's line was about how there were soldiers in America and Russia who spent the whole day with their finger over the button, waiting for the order to press it. Actually, there probably are, but it's not what an eight-year-old needs to hear. My brother was also the one who woke me in the middle of the night when NATO and Russian forces had an unexpected standoff at Pristina Airport in Kosovo in 1999. He was watching it all on Sky News, of course. Durr. 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 Get up and look at this. Get up and look at this. Look, the Russian. The Russians are taking over the airport. Yeah, the, the Russians are they're taking the airport. Again, not what an anxious teenager needs to be woken up to. He had also watched the initial reports of Diana's car accident in Paris two years earlier, when she was reported badly injured. Now, he didn't wake me up for that. But I remember finding out news of her death the next morning. And after that, I watched Sky News for a week solid. When the car she was travelling in collided with another vehicle in a tunnel. I got out of bed and headed for the window. I pulled the curtains. Tall trees on the other side of the road swayed in significant wind. Why is that going off now? Is it some kind of incident? Is it like terrorism or... ISIS, or is it something local? Has something leaked? Is it a chemical or something from one of the factories? But this was Kilkenny, 
city where I was born and raised. It's famous for Smithwick's Ale and Hurling. And also for being pretty old. In fact, it's been around for about a thousand years. That said, alarming incidents in the city's history have been relatively rare. In 1324, Kilkenny played host to the first recorded example of a trial for witchcraft in Ireland. Alice Kittler was accused of acquiring illicit powers through sexual intercourse with a demon. The charge was motivated by the suspicions of Kittler's stepchildren, who she had acquired through four wealthy husbands, all of whom seemed to die. Kittler was pursued by a particularly zealous bishop called Richard de la Dread, and the whole affair became known as a clash between secular and ecclesiastical authority in medieval Ireland. When her goose was just about cooked, Alice escaped Ireland and was never seen again. Her maid, Petronella, took the blame and was burned to death as a heretic. That was rough, but not exactly a public emergency. In 1650, Kilkenny was besieged by Oliver Cromwell and the New Model Army. I once read that the Puritan troops used to chant Sams as they prepared for battle. The image of these roundheads reeling off their weird prayers as they march on Kilkenny definitely captures the imagination. Cromwell had already butchered Drogheda and Wexford. At the time, Kilkenny was the capital of the Confederation, a loose alliance of Irish Catholics and English Royalists who both had a lot to lose if Cromwell succeeded. The local population must have been worried, and I'm sure they had some kind of early warning system too. In the end, Kilkenny gave Cromwell a decent fight. Sieges weren't really his strong point, and he had to probe the city for a day or two before one of his cannons finally breached the walls. After that, Kilkenny was done for. Dressing myself quickly, I ran downstairs to get a grip of what was going on. I was alone in the house, so there was no one to speculate with. I stepped outside my front door, across the dark cloudy sky, tinted orange by Kilkenny's lights. I could almost see the siren on the wind. I faced where it felt like it was coming from. Actually, it was so loud that I thought it was coming from a lorry depot across the street from where I lived. I looked around to see if anyone else was out, but there was nobody. Back inside, I went through the living room, on the way to the kitchen. Passing the TV, I considered turning on Sky News to see if this was more than an isolated incident. More possibilities ran through my mind. Breaking news. Explosion at Sellafield nuclear plant. News alert. Irish authorities evacuating East Coast. Sellafield. That was the other great boogeyman of my nerves about the end of all things. After the Chernobyl disaster in 1986... Ireland started looking nervously at this nuclear power plant on the western English coast. If Sellafield did a Chernobyl, it's likely that Ireland would be badly exposed to fallout. This is something I remember internalising at a fairly young age. After 9-11, as the threat of international terrorism became more glaring, the Irish government issued iodine tablets to the population as a kind of, well, it's important to be seen to be doing something, measure. If Osama bin Laden's apostles managed to cause some kind of ruckus at Sellafield, the idea was that we would all pop an iodine tablet and, well, sure, it's something anyway. A few years later, after the effectiveness of the original batch had expired, it was decided not to reissue the tablets. 
the notion that they would have worked in the first place had by then become... questionable. I don't know why I didn't turn on the news. Maybe I really was scared. I decided instead to ring Kilkenny Gardaí. The officer who answered sounded like she was having an early morning to remember. Hi, yeah, um, I live on the Freshford Road and uh, there's there's a really loud siren coming from Brannigan's uh, truck yard there across the road. No, it's actually from the army barracks. Someone set off the civil defence siren and they don't know how to turn it off. Oh, right. Yeah, I've had hundreds of calls all morning. All right. Jeez, for a second there I thought we'd started World War Three. No, you're safe enough, pet. Hopefully they'll get it off soon now. Right, yeah, hopefully. Yeah, exactly, okay, yeah, yeah. Bye now. Alright, thanks, see you. The army barracks. James Stevens barracks. Of course, it was behind the lorry depot, or at least in that direction. Built in 1803, Victoria barracks was designed to fortify Kilkenny as the gateway to the southeast. In 1798, the biggest rebellion in Irish history had happened in neighbouring Wexford, so the British were getting ready for the next one. In 1848, the Young Irelanders targeted Kilkenny in their insurrection, but they never got beyond a farmhouse in rural Tipperary. However, one of them, James Stevens, who was actually born in the barracks and a Kilkenny native himself, eventually had his name bestowed on the barracks. During the Irish Revolution, Kilkenny saw more action than it had since Cromwell. The surrounding countryside was particularly active during the 1919-21 independence struggle. Two IRA men were killed in a botched ambush around the city friary too. Then, in 1922, Kilkenny staged a kind of rehearsal for the impending civil war. Several key buildings were occupied by IRA forces, protesting what they saw as the treaty sellout. The same thing was happening all over Ireland. The difference in Kilkenny was that the shooting started and finished before the rest of the country. The occupation of the castle by IRA forces was particularly hard for the newly formed Kilkenny Battalion to deal with. Since the 14th century, the castle in Kilkenny had been owned by the Butlers of Ormond, a particularly loyal aristocratic family. During the 1922 siege, the Earl of Ossery, butler in residence, stayed in the castle with Lady Ossery and their dog while the battle raged. His account of the event reeks of a kind of British snobbery towards the two warring factions. What's worse, the IRA men who occupied his castle continuously referred to him as the boss during the whole episode. And even worse than that, Ossery demanded that the new Irish government pay for the damage they did to the castle during their attack to take it back. And what's worse, they ended up paying him. Ah, lads! It was now around an hour since I'd woken up from the nightmare. I looked at Facebook and Twitter to see if anyone in digital Kilkenny was noticing what was going on. There were a few tweets, but not as many as I would have thought. I let one go myself. After Tobin. Dreaming about World War III, only to wake up to the civil defence iron in Hashtag Kilkenny at 4.50am. Absolutely surreal. Although the siren was still blaring, I was starting to get sleepy again. So I climbed the stairs, and I got back into bed. Suddenly, just as I was drifting back to sleep, the siren stopped. 
and you know that moment of relief when a seemingly incessant sound ceases. I wondered what could have caused the siren to go off in the first place. The next day, I contacted the military press office to see if anyone could provide an explanation. The soldier who answered my call seemed reluctant to feel my questions. Instead, she recommended that I submit an email, so that someone could pore over my questions with a fine tooth comb, I presume. The official military response landed in my inbox a few hours later. Almost all military barracks and facilities at home and overseas have some form of audible alarm system. It is either used to indicate a defensive requirement for the post or sometimes to recall military personnel in the locality to the barracks. Many barracks test these alarms for a few seconds from time to time and at a time of day so as not to disturb local residents. In the case of Stevens Barracks Kilkenny, a technical fault caused the alarm to sound in the early hours of the morning. I understand members of the garrison have been on local media apologising for this inconvenience. Strange. The guard on the phone had called it the civil defence siren, but the military made no reference to that in their response. The siren apparently is designed to call the troops in when Cromwell and the new model are on the horizon, or when the IRA take over the castle. So there's nothing really for the average citizen to do when they hear it. No particular protocol we should follow. No preparing for emergency evacuation. Nothing. Just listen. The Irish Civil Defence does exist. It was set up in 1950 as a volunteer corps to assist frontline services during big emergencies. It often gets sent out during bad flooding and other such incidents. Originally though, its purpose was to prepare for the big one. In 1965, the Civil Defence published Boss Baha, a 55-page booklet on how citizens should handle the end of the world. When you hear the final warning, you know that the fallout has started, or is about to start. If you have fires in the grates or boilers, extinguish them. Turn off your water supply at the stopcock, and any gas or electric heaters in use. Go into your refuge room immediately, even if your preparations are incomplete. Bring your radio set with you, or make sure it can be heard in the refuge room. The power of a nuclear weapon is measured in kilotons and megatons. Here is a general description of the probable effects of a one megaton weapon exploded at or near ground level. The explosion would produce a blinding flash lasting some seconds accompanied by a searing heat and followed some seconds later by a hurricane-like blast. You have to eat even in the midst of a nuclear war. But your meals will seldom be cooked. Cooking uses up air and makes the enclosed atmosphere of the refuge room heavy with odours. Your stock of food will be made up of tinned goods and other foods which require little or no cooking. Here are some suggestions for your emergency food stock. Tinned vegetables. Tinned or packaged soups. Tinned meat. Sugar.
This has been a Yarn Podcast, written and narrated by Dermot Tobin, with help from Claire Hall. Edited by John Roach, Yarn Extraordinaire. <laughs> <laughs>